Bible. Welcome to this Manchester Punk Festival special bonus episode of Punks in Pubs. That was a lot more of a mouthful than I thought it would be when I was writing this kind of fucking intro. Uh, if you listen back to episode 36 with myself and Rob Waste, uh, I spoke about my time at Manchester Punk Festival a couple of weeks ago and that I conducted two live shows there at the festival. Uh, The original plan was to keep these recordings as standalone episodes, uh, but the audio quality is, uh, let's just say, a little shit. Not wholly shit, it's not completely shit, but for me it wasn't um, at the normal standard I like to offer you lovely people. So I've decided to release them as uh, Manchester Punk Festival special bonus episode. So you've got the one today. And then next Sunday, we will do episode 37 as normal. And then the week after that, I will release the other uh, live interview that I did with Joe Tillerson. But I just want to give them to you instead of just uh, not using them at all. Also, it's good for me to get your feedback. So please do give me your feedback on the live show. Something I have noticed from listening back to the audio is that I am talking way too fucking fast. And I don't seem to be in the moment, which is annoying. Uh, but it's all good. It's all good learning, really. Let's face it. And uh, I'm honest, though, I was kind of shit in my pants. So hey, ho, we all learn together. Anyway, this is the first of the content I'm giving to you, and this is an episode where punk and comedy collide. Because on a Saturday lunchtime, in the front bar, down in the basement, in front of some real life fucking people, I sat down with two comedians, uh, the MCs who are running all things comedy at the Manchester Punk Festival. They were called Sully O'Sullivan and Red Redmond, who is also known as Scarlett Sohansen. As we've spoken about in past episodes, I fucking love comedy. So this opportunity to pick the brains of these two fantastic comedians was one I was really grateful I got the opportunity to do. I'm not going to do my normal long rant about what to expect in this episode, but I will say this, you can expect comedy. Of course, we talk about comedy, we talk about punk, and we talk about the links between comedy and punk and that the whole DIY uh, ethos that can be found in both of these genres. Just because it is a bonus episode doesn't mean that I have forgotten about you. Uh, Your band will play out the show as normal. So playing out the show this week are a band coming at you from Austin, Texas. And they are called Hans Gruber and the Diehards. Great name. So stick around for that. So let's get on with the episode. This is the audio of the very first live Punks in Pubs episode I've ever done with myself, Red Redmond and Sully O'Sullivan. Enjoy. 
Podcast. It's a podcast that I started about a year and a bit ago, where I go around and talk to anyone with some affiliation to uh, punk at all. And uh, Manchester Punk Festival kindly gave us some time to come and have a chat. Uh, if people upstairs can hear us, it'd be nice if you come down and uh, come see whatever is about to happen. So I am here with uh, two people who have kindly given up their time. Uh, I'm going to go from the left. Uh, Sully, hello. Hello. And I've got Red right here. Hello. And uh, these two are emceeing the, the comedy show that's happening over the way. What's, what's, what's the first The Thirsty Scholar. The Thirsty Scholar. So yesterday was the first day of the, the comedy festival. It's got attached to this. How was it? Was it okay? Bad? Cool? Yeah, yeah, really good. I mean, this is our second year here. Uh, last year we did one day. Now we've been asked to do three days, which is a privilege. And uh, no, the gig's been great. I just realised I said I was going to do the mic and I, I completely put the mic on the ground yeah and just like fuck that <laughs> um, MCing it's kind of like the I, I see it as like the flavour fave of like any band because, <laughs> yeah because you're on there and you need to like you need to get everyone else ready for essentially gearing up for the next act or whoever's coming on how difficult is that if basically your crowd cannot give a fuck about you, but they're there to see like the main headliner, and that's it. Well, well, the analogy that we tend to use more is the fluffer in a porn film. Yeah. Uh, so we are there to get the uh, audience's attention, uh, facing the right way, and get them ready for uh, the main acts to tee off. Uh, but yeah, it can be a balancing act if uh, everybody's there to see the headliner. Um, but that is part of your job. That's why you get paid to do it. With that in mind, then, like if the headliner, everyone is there to see the headliner. Do you just kind of like start ripping on the headliner and just mention the headliner a lot? <laughs> just kind of make sure that they remember that the headliner is coming to stick around. Uh, uh, there are sort of tricks to a trade. Like if you're, if you, say you're doing a tour show and it's a big name headliner, then sometimes you get the headliner to introduce the uh, MC or the support act over uh, the voice of God. So that way the audience know that uh, that act is basically endorsed by the headliner. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, a good support act or a good MC uh, connects with the audience. Uh, that's part of their job. Or at the other end, if you're playing a pop of Bear Pit, uh, then the MC's main job is crowd control uh, <laughs> to turn it into a gig. So, yeah, every circumstance is slightly different. So when you are when you are MCing then, have you been to a show? Sorry, when, when you've been to a show and you see other people MCing for you, are you like, mate, come on, like, you can do better than this. Like, come on, you really, I, I need you to be better than this. Uh, people MC in different ways. People use different techniques. Yeah. Uh, some people are very conversational and friendly MCs and are, and are low status. Other people are high status and command the audience's attention. So uh, everybody goes about it in a different way. Uh, so I don't think there's an issue of right or wrong. It's about the outcome, whether you get the job done. Uh, just like, you know, look, uh, comedy's like music. It's different styles and different genres. Uh, and there's different bands that are most appropriate in different environments. Comedy came to MPF last year, like we spoke about, yep. and uh, Red, you facilitated that with your own uh, comedy um, production company. How? Why do you think comedies play such a huge part in festivals now, like at music festivals? Because 
as a cynic, I'd be like, I'm going to music to go and watch music. I'm not here to go and watch a comic. Well, it's, it's a change of pace, isn't it? I mean, we were just talking earlier about how we think today's show in our venue is going to be pretty fucking solid because it's the best hangover cure you'd possibly want at a punk festival. If you've been out skanking till midnight, you're going to want to go into a dark room and just listen to what someone else has to say. Yeah. You know, so um, I, I think I think that's why it works really well at festivals. It's just a change of pace, uh, but you're still keeping the quality high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a gentle stroking before you get up to the main event. I think I've just gone inadvertently back to the fluffer analogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're like an alternative to an acoustic act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With comedy playing such a big part at festivals now, as comedians, do you have to kind of? Um, sculpt your uh, stylings to different environments because like you've got the festivals and now there's a huge scene for stag and hen and then obviously you've got the corporate gigs as performers like were like I don't know 10 years ago when you when you were probably starting out or 20 years ago have you t- realised like a change in the comedy uh, market and have you had to adapt oh that's a big one <laughs> there's lots of changes isn't oh it? yeah yeah I mean look uh, every performance scene has always changed it goes with different styles uh, different genres are popular at different times uh, you know obviously Seinfeld was the biggest thing in comedy at one point yeah. uh, obviously it's still a big name but that's more now a nostalgic thing um, and yeah look different fest, fest, music festivals are different they cater to different audiences so the type of acts that you'll book for a punk festival are different to the types of comedy acts you'll book for the likes of Reading and Leeds totally um, and, and, and yes some acts can play all um, and some are best in specific environments hmm. audiences are changing as well like one of the most successful shows that I run is an LGBT comedy club in Manchester just on Canal Street and like there is now more, more of an appetite for like an alternative event uh, because I do think uh, most mainstream comedy clubs, most people that go there are straight, white, middle class, married, have quite normal lives. And so there is an appetite for comedy clubs that cater to different audiences, different tastes. The urban circuit's doing very well. Um, a lot of gay shows. Um, you know, it's uh, lots of different things. Alternative yeah. is definitely having its day at the moment and I'm guessing like those bigger festivals and like you said like more alternative uh, venues popping up it gives a spotlight to a more of a wider general issue that doesn't get yeah. spoken about in news or current affairs or stuff well, spoken in current affairs but not with kind of like yeah, not, uh, as a trans person I agree yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah and it's, al- it's also like again going back to almost a music analogy you have different markets so you get mainstream bands with mainstream followings but then you also get those cult bands that go for 30 years that never sign to a major label but can make a perfectly good living because they have that cult hardcore following that will follow them everywhere uh, and, and, and keep going to those gigs and comedy can be similar in that you can have acts that uh, get lots of TV time and people are perfectly happy for they have them on the TV in the background yeah. but it's something again uh, for an act to have something about them that will make people get off their asses buy tickets and go and see that act at a live venue and that's a different quality totally is totally is. I think my mic your mic keeps cutting out yeah not really it's back but it's gone it's, it's black intermittent so let's talk about music then uh, I'm going to start with you Red um, what kind of, did, did you find punk straight away like was you, that your first musical genre that you found you like this is for me uh, or did you have to go through like as someone said yesterday in an interview a Mickey Mouse phase of finding music yeah. well I mean like, I was, I was when I was sort of like getting into music, it was like when, you know, fucking Blink and 
Green Day and Sum 41 were about. So, like, yeah, I didn't... You fucking child. No, I know, but, like, you know, all I had was Kerrang! TV. Like, that's all I had. So, yeah, I suppose I did go through a Mickey Mouse phase. Lincoln Park were my boys. <laughs> um, but we're, we're well out the other side now. We're well out the other side. <laughs> what about you, Sonny? About- uh, honestly, the first punk band I would have been exposed to would have been The Clash. Um, and then after that, probably because my you know, age demographic rancid would have been next. Yeah. Um, and then sort of, you know, onward from there. And then, and then your tastes get slowly more niche yeah. yeah. I mean, for you, Sonny, you were... Shout, I'm just going to shout. Um, so, <laughs> so for you, Sonny, you were kind of, you're, you're halfway around the world. And as a true ignorant British person, my knowledge of New Zealand is literally nothing. So my knowledge of New Zealand punk is literally less than nothing. Uh, uh, the, the, the unfortunate truth is if you Google New Zealand punk, you'll probably get the rabble. Um, and then that will be the only entry, uh, just about. Um, Australia has... Uh, probably a more permanent punk scene than New Zealand. You've got bands like The Decline that have been around for a long time. Uh, Amel and the Sniffers uh, are great um, and making waves at the moment. Uh, but it's... You know, I, I, I've, I've got to say there's, there's nothing in New Zealand to equate uh, next to the Manchester Punk Festival. Like, <laughs> like this is... Uh, it, 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 you know, uh, as... as Coming from the other side of the planet, uh, I am like a child in a candy store. <laughs> so, I mean, you spoke about like Australian bands coming over to New Zealand. I mean, that's a, still a three and a half hour flight. Like, when you were growing up, were bands like were the, I don't know, let's say the Clash or the Rancid, were they coming through to New Zealand? Like, was it a while until you saw like a big international act live? Oh, look, look, you, yeah, it is. Obviously, it's a long way to go, and so, and, and we also don't have other countries around us. So it's not like you know you get a band in the UK who are on the end of a mainland European tour. Uh, if you come to New Zealand, you've made the effort. <laughs> uh, in fact, you probably only went there because you'd run out of places to go. Um, uh, and so, yeah, you do tend to get those stadium filler acts. But, you, you know, the weird thing is you also get acts that are disproportionately big in New Zealand, uh, even if they're not that big in other parts of the world, even their home country. And we, we have a phrase to that back home, which is world famous in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> and so you'll get... Uh, um, um, you, you, you'll get bands who um, yeah they might be big where they're from but in New Zealand they fill a stadium uh, for some reason we don't know why it just you know wow yeah 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 <laughs> we just latched onto them and went you're ours now yeah. so it's working out I love it and so Red what about you when when was the first time you went to like what would become a punk show a like, punk show yeah because so you had to Lincoln Park uh, I don't know man like uh, who would have been what have been the first Ah, I, I, you know, like it would have been like just seeing bands at download. So, like seeing like Gallows when I was sixteen, or like something like that. Um, that would be when I started seeing like sort of regular. It would have been festivals. Would have been summer festivals. Download is sort of like where I grew up. Um, they always have like two punk bands on a year. They'll be like, right, you can have Pennywise and No Effects, and you can shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's normally normally download festival, but. Um, since that, I mean, like we've seen loads in the last couple of years. We've been seeing Rancid in Liverpool, uh, Dropkick Murphys. I've seen about three times in recent years. Like me, you're you're quite slight and slender. Yeah. So are you like? Do you get into the punk, into the pit, and put your elbows out, or are you like yeah, a more yeah. of a watch from the side? Well, I find if you're slender, like it's abs- like 
I've never had an issue. The only you, if you get kicked in the back of the head from a crowd surfer, get a bit of whiplash. But like, if you're skinny, I think it's quite difficult to. There's not much to grab onto. Yeah, you're very I just, angular. You're I just pogo. Yeah, I'm stabby. If you if you come for me, you're gonna get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be near a nice, comfy, bulky. Yeah, bed. but no, like, I'm I'm a huge like my favorite band is the Bronx, and whenever I see them, I'm always down the front. I'm always crowd surfing. Uh, never have any issues. Slender people, I think, are impervious to damage in a pit. <laughs> That's definitely not true. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna find out later. <laughs> Like you're on being on stage, you can make you can comparison to yourself on front on stage. You're the front person. Do you see other front people in band? And you go, I like what they're doing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mirror what they're doing because the only reason I ask that question is because Joe Talbot of Idols reminds me of uh, Bill Hicks. The way that Bill Hicks used to like prowl the stage. Joe's like that, and he's very much like saying, "Come into my area. I will dare you. And if you do, I'll fucking rip you rip to pieces." I, I know that one of the acts that we both are actually quite impressed with after having seen them at Download is Fozzy. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is Chris Jericho from WWE's band Fozzy? Because like, you, and you said this in fact. It, it, it's not my opinion at all, but you made the point of after doing years of cardio. Like, you're a better frontman than any other frontman at a metal festival. Well, well, the other thing, you can see he's worked in entertainment for a few yeah. decades, not just the music, the entertainment. So, and like you say, the cardio's amazing. So he's up one end of the stage, down the other, he's climbing things, grabbing a camera off a camera guy, so we're getting Jericho camera, getting his view of the crowd, all this type of work. Whereas you do get other bands that go, and here's another song. Yeah. <laughs> Because they've only all they've done for twenty years is drink and live on the road, and that doesn't get your your cardio up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that guy. But that, uh... <laughs> um, with that in mind, then, like when you are on stage and you are perfecting your skills on stage, how aware are you that you are just kind of you moving? You just went one place, and you, like in your head, you're like, "Oh, I've been here for like five minutes. I need to go over there now." I Me, mean, I like to use the entire environment. Uh... I did want stage dive at Leicester Square Theatre. Uh, that's an all-seated theatre. <laughs> Probably not my, not my best decision-making ever. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, uh, you, you, look, you get different personas, different styles on stage, so you do get some people who are very low status and part of their shtick, for lack of a better way to put it, is that they don't move around a lot. They're very diminutive. They draw the audience in, and you get other acts, other performers that are much bigger presence on stage they move around a lot they've got a lot of energy and they imbue that into the audience so again uh, comedy's like music there's styles there's genres there's different ways of going about things there's no right there's no wrong it's about the end result 
So have you taken that like your own punk ethics into the work that you do? Like, are there certain venues that you won't go to because they're sponsored by O2 or something like that? Is that something you've taken yourself? I, I've always said that I really want the opportunity to sell out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not saying I would. I just really want the option. Uh, <laughs> It'd be nice. You know. Know. <laughs> um, oh, look, look. One thing about one thing that the stand-up scenes and the punk scenes do share in common uh, at, at a root. Uh, is that they are very DIY, uh, they're very do-it-yourself, um, they're very independent. I mean, even, uh, you know, there's acts out there who are making waves at the moment, somebody getting TV work, um, uh, comics coming through, but for their live work, uh, they are their own manager, their own agent, yeah. their own roadie, they're doing it all themselves. Um, and so that whole DIY thing of running your own gigs, putting things together, making things happen for yourself, uh, is something that punk and stand-up comedy uh, at the grass will very much do share in common. Well, I mean, talking about like a DIY status, you read of, we spoke about you got your own comedy club, um, Dead Cat. Why was that? Was that because you was pissed off for playing other comedy venues and you just like, I don't like this? What did I... Um, I suppose, like, when it started out, yeah, there was a bit of a, like, a fuck you attitude. I think I should, I should be booked more, which was definitely not true. Um, but, <laughs> but, no, over the years, like, I uh, started running gigs and started running actually good ones. And the idea is to... I think if you work in comedy and you, you're constantly, like, seeing like, ridiculously talented people... I'm sure if you work in punk, you see the same with bands as well. And you're just desperate for people to see them. So you're basically creating these gigs and these spaces so that people can come and see interesting art and different art because what we see on the TV is mainstream and it is always just different shades of the same colour whereas what you can see live, whether it's music or comedy, is always more interesting, more truthful and more honest Do you think we've regressed though in comedy in the sense of what is on TV now? Because yes there are more female comics but it is still very binary of male and female comics there isn't uh, a non-binary element of people being on panel shows. Well, as as the UK's only openly non-binary professional comedian, I agree. <laughs> and I'm I'm agree. Quota system right now. <laughs> but you know, like it is literally just me. So I don't know. I don't think that we should. Yeah, it'd be lovely to get some TV work, but there's no way of me saying that without yeah. it being entirely it, it narcissistic. Tricky, <laughs> it is a tricky one, because you do get, have promoters out there who want to diversify their lineups. Um, but I remember uh, one promoter complaining recently, he was putting together a standard weekend club bill, um, and he said, I've got these spots available, uh, and 105 acts all put their hands up, said, we're available that weekend's, and less than 5% of those acts were female. Um, so even on a normal gender scale, uh, that promoter's going, well, how do I put together a diverse lineup when yeah. less than 5% of the acts that have put themselves forward, you know, 95% of the acts that have put themselves forward are men? But why do you think that is? Do you think it's because there has been such a history of women shouldn't be in comedy or shouldn't, like, there's that piscina of... Uh, women aren't funny the, the honest truth is people have been debating that question for so long and I've never really heard a good answer yeah. there's never there's so Not many theories I mean like I do think if you're living on the road and and doing all that and living day to day and drinking what I, I do, it's not the it does feel like quite a masculine lifestyle. I'm not surprised that a few women are put off by it. Um, but, like, I've seen a huge rise in female talent in the last few years. 
And I think it's only getting better. Um, and it, particularly on TV, I think TV is much more fair in general representation than, let's say, live comedy clubs on a weekend in the Northwest. Uh, there's still a lot to go in. I mean, uh, on a similar note, uh, I could also see that live stand-up is easier for people who are single. You know, uh, yeah. I know yeah, acts exactly. that have yeah, yeah. partners, families, and all the rest, and I, I see how many hours they're doing on the road, and I'm going, oh, this doesn't sound like a no. normal, healthy relationship situation. <laughs> Hard to get work-life balance right. Yeah, totally. So with Dead Cat, you seem to have opened up a space whereabouts people can express themselves in a, in a safe environment. I mean, that, that term safe space has come kind of a, a political word that has been yeah, yeah. incorporated in le- like liberal lefties have made this. Yeah, yeah. Like, would, you, would you agree like, that safe space is liberal lefty or do you see actually not? It's, like, it's just needed at this point in time. Um, I mean, like, my, I would say that my gigs kind of are safe spaces, but I, I've never put on any promo material that they are. Uh, it's just the with the sort of acts that we book in in the spaces that we perform, it is very sort of like LGBT. It's I, I basically I explain Dead Cat is for queers, nerds, and weirdos. That's that's roughly our sort of bracket, and I think those become naturally safe spaces. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would uh, I would say it's not a safe space gig; it's safe space by proxy. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, like, like our punk gig here today at Thirsty Scholar. We don't say anything to make it safe, but it's intrinsically very polite. Like, <laughs> it is amazing how polite you punks are. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 and also also very open minded in terms of content. Like yeah. you can do gigs where you have trigger words and you can't talk about certain topics uh, at a punk gig you talk about pretty much anything probably the only trigger word out there would be uh, so the reason I voted Tory and then <laughs> other than that pretty much open slather yeah I mean, trigger words is an interesting thing because trigger words is essentially uh, freedom of speech, like the idea of how far you can push something before it breaks. And comedy, I feel, has had a, been put on that pedestal of you are the bastions of finding out how far you can push something. Do you think that's too much pressure on comedians? Because you're just, just making a living, really. That's what you're trying to do. To, to be honest, at the moment, anyone who's like really pushing boundaries is really boring me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, because it's always like someone who's pushing boundaries is always, it's just always the same person. It's always a lad in a slingback just going like, you know what? I fucking hate women. It's like, you did 30 years ago. <laughs> this, this doesn't feel new to me. Um, so I find the acts that say they're edgy to me are the least edgy and the most boring. But there are plenty of interesting cutting-edge acts out there that probably wouldn't label themselves as that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's, um, there's a difference between pushing boundaries and trying to push boundaries. Yeah. Often the people that are pushing boundaries aren't actually trying to do so. They're just opening up and being honest yeah, totally. um, and dissecting stuff. Uh, whereas the people who, if you're just trying too hard to push a boundary, then it stops being a comedy gig uh, and starts uh, turning into a rally. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cold night beneath the street light. There's a man whose pants are too tight. Oh no, his pants are too tight. My pants are too tight. He stands there, an empty stare, trying to make enough money for his cafe home. He'll have to walk home tonight. Don't have enough for the ride. The streets are cool, he tries to act cool. He goes to work with only his one tool. 
Spoken about coming over from New Zealand. I think you went to New Zealand, Australia, and then kind of toured, and oh, then came to. You, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but you spoke about New Zealand basically being one gig a, a, a night, and you knew that because you were setting up that yeah, gig. Yeah, that is true. When I left, uh, so I started doing comedy in Wellington, uh, New Zealand, and when I left Wellington for Auckland. We had one gig once a week for the entire city, one comedy gig. And I know that for a fact because I was the one booking the gig. Um, and then when I started heading overseas, I actually started gigging in Canada, northwest of the US first. Um, part of the reason for that is uh, they're a New Zealand comedian, total novelty. Uh, so they are willing to book you on spec. Uh, and remember, this was before the days where everybody had a YouTube video. So they are booking you simply on your experience and your, basically your, what we call your comedy CV. Um, so I started gigging over there first, uh, went back to New Zealand for a bit, dipped my toe in the water in the UK, and then uh, a year or so later made the move over full time. So why the UK? Because obviously, like, I think people in the UK think our comedy scene is literally the shit. Like, why would you go anywhere else? As comedians who have toured, is British comedy like the best place to be a comedian? Or are there actually other places like, I don't know, Italy, France, Germany, whereabouts? So there is quite a big comedy scene. Yeah, there's lots of ways to make a living doing comedy. Everybody comedies differently. So uh, I, I work a lot on the club circuit. Um, and I also work outside the UK. I know other acts who work almost exclusively festivals. Um, so they do like a festival route literally round the globe and do very little club work. Uh, there's other people who are more centred on uh, touring as opposed to club work. Um, so everybody goes about the comedy industry in a slightly different way. Uh, one thing that uh, the UK has over other countries, and people don't mention this, but this applies to bands as well, is it's really compact. Um, like the distances here compared to other countries are small. Like when I first started gigging in Canada, do the usual chit chat after a gig. You know, you say, you know, ask another actor, they're gigging tomorrow, and they'd be like, yeah, so you've got to travel far, and they'd be like, oh, it's about a 16 hour drive. And you just look at them and they're like, oh, would you not drive 16 hours for a gig in New Zealand? I'm like, mate, you couldn't. Like, you'd have to turn the car around. Like, your car's going to get wet. <laughs> you run out of island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause it's kind of the same because whenever you speak to like an American band, they say, "Oh, we just play and play and play and play because it's so vast. You can just yeah. jump in the van and go." Where in the UK, I think a lot of bands, if they start doing that, they've ran out of venues or towns where they can actually get a show. So, is that the same then with comedians? Then, like, would you rather stay in one place, hone your act, or go out on the road and play as many shows as you can and hone your act that way? Again, everybody's different and lifestyles. I mean, I um. I have some mates uh, from back home who these days are total gypsy comedians. They are homeless in anything but name. Uh, they travel from city to city, live out of a suitcase, um, literally global. So, you know, there's Southeast Asia runs you can do these days. Um, uh, and your money can go further down there. That's probably part of their economic plan. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's different for everybody. Other people 
do like you know work out their economics and find it's better for them to sort of base themselves out of one area. Um, uh, also, social media has changed both. Uh, it's changed the situation with both bands and comedians over the last decade or so um, because you can now potentially build a following circumventing in some instances a mainstream radio play, mainstream TV. Uh, you've got uh, Paul Smith based out of Liverpool yeah. who uh, recently sold out an arena. Uh, the man's never been on TV. He's never had a radio show. It's literally all social media, YouTube, etc, etc. Uh, so there's different ways to go, go about making a living at comedy and different thing, uh, di- different uh, decisions are better for other, different people's lifestyle um, some people love the life on the road and others really want to be able to put their head down in their own bed because you both are on social media uh, but then you got a comedian like Daniel Kirsten sorry unless you know of him like like, could you live that life of a comedian who's living literally by word of mouth? Yeah, but I mean, like, he's like, yeah, I mean, well, he's got the, he's got what everybody wants, what every comedian wants, because, like, he doesn't have to publicize himself because he's got a big enough audience that will just buy whatever he's fucking selling. So, like, that's, that's the dream, isn't it? Like, he doesn't have to play to people who don't know him, people who don't and like that, him. That's going back to the cult following type yeah. situation. And also, he doesn't need to worry about, you know, walking down the shops being harassed because Joe Public doesn't know who totally. he is I mean a, a great example of uh, Kitson's cult following is uh, uh, when you go up doing Edinburgh Fringe Run it's normal to take a day off during the month because it can be a real pressure cooker and some people take one day off a week uh, Kitson went up one year and went I'm going to take sad days off uh, now that's normally insane because yeah. that would be your biggest selling night that's when you're guaranteed to sell out but because he's got such a cult following, he's got to sell out every night anyway. Yeah. So he decided he'd take Saturdays off. The venue love that because they can fill it with somebody else uh, on those Saturdays or a different type of show. And he can go off and do whatever else he wants, whether it's go see other shows or, or just live a normal life. He just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he's the most punk out of everyone, yeah. yeah. Is, is. <laughs> so with, with Edinburgh, he's such a behemoth now of what, it's, what it is. And... Um, like comedians now like Richard Herring I read his like he's saying I'm not doing Edinburgh anymore I'm just it's like throwing money at a pit the the finances of Edinburgh are chaos uh, is the best way to describe it Uh, one of the biggest issues is that comedians have been told over years and years and years that it's normal and acceptable to lose money and it's not and, and they get told that everybody loses money. And that just doesn't make sense to me because that's like saying, uh, oh, me, I had some mates around for a poker game last weekend. You go, well, oh, well, who won? Oh, no one did. We all lost money. Well, that doesn't make any sense. The money went somewhere. Now, it may not have gone to the comedians. Maybe it went to the council. Maybe it went to the people that rent out the accommodation. Maybe it went to the big venues. But it definitely went somewhere. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I'm involved these days with running... Uh, an independent venue up at the Edinburgh Fringe. We took on another venue this year, so we'll be running both uh, the Beehive and Nightcap under the Scottish Comedy Festival oh, banner. Oh, you got Nightcap yeah, as well. Yeah, we got Nightcap oh, as well. Oh, that's good. Uh, we I ex- did that two years ago. Yeah, yeah, we've expanded to a new venue. Uh, so we've got one in Old Town and New Town these days. And part of the idea behind that is that is a comedy venues run by comedians. Yeah. Um, so it is trying to eliminate that mystery black hole void of where that money disappears down to. Um, and the weird thing is, is you get performers running... Uh, 
doing their shows at bigger name venues who are coming out either losing money or making very little profit and then they come across to us and go I've got all this money left over the end of the fringe it's like yeah we don't know how that works either mate we, we just didn't take it off you part way through the process yeah so do you think there's that kind of that comedy uh uh, upbringing really of what happened in the music industry whereby they realise actually we don't need record labels actually we can do this ourselves we, we can we can like get a venue and plaster it whatever we want kind of like what you're doing with your own comedy club like but in a capacity in Edinburgh yeah it, yeah I guess maybe <laughs> just no one's making money so like it doesn't really matter what I mean, some people are, you know, but like, uh, if you are taking up a show and you're spending 10k on it and you're not seeing anything left of it, what's the fucking point? <laughs> it, it, Literally, it, it, what's the point? It, it is tricky because, again, people go to the Edinburgh Fringe for different reasons. Yeah. Like, if you are going to try to get that breakthrough TV deal, then you probably do want to be at a premium yeah. venue and you want to probably play a publicist and spend the money on posters, flyers, brochure adverts, all that kind of carry on. Um, but if you, if your budget and what you come out with is important to you at the end of the month, uh, as, as in your, uh, your accounting, um, then you will go about the fringe in a different way. You won't just throw money, spend money hand over fist. Is that yeah. right, Chris? Yeah. Um, uh, you won't just throw money at an advert when you don't know if it actually has any real effect. Um, so there, there are different ways of going about the fringe. One of the other difficult things is... Uh, almost every space that the Edinburgh Fringe is used. Yeah, uh, when you can yeah. find a space uh, that hasn't already been taken, uh, well, well done you. Um, I mean, I've been going. Uh, this year would be like ten years of going up, going up to the Fringe and performing at the Fringe. I always do like a full run, and uh, I, I genuinely can't get a venue without spending. Uh, two grand on like room hire which would then be eventually up to ten grand including everything that you would spend in that month without doing that I literally can't go mm. so I'm just going to go out for a week and see some shows but like that's what it's come to and you know I'm, I've, li- I've put ten years of work into it that's why it's weird it's sort of like you think if you turn up to something in ten years you put in hard work you know I know how to sell a show I know how to fill a room uh, every day of a of a run for a month but I can't get a company to uh, agree to work with me unless I pay them two and a half grand. When a band is doing something for about five, six years and they come to a point like, am I going to keep doing this? Have have you had that point where you've gone, I'm just... I'm not making what I need to make to be able to do this as a career and then it kind of becomes a hobby, so to speak. I think we always... Or worried about where things will go. I think in general in this country right now we're worried about where things will go. Um, but I mean, for me, like the way I, I, I work. I, obviously, I perform and I do stand up and I do drag. Uh, but I also I, I book a lot and I, I work with a lot of venues across the north across the northwest, booking and promoting comedy tour shows uh, and drag shows. So, like, you know, I'm 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 quite lucky in that I can. I can run shows and I can perform shows, and both of those together, I, I do all right for myself. 
Uh, but I know you pretty much just perform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I pretty much just gig. Aside from running a venue at the Edinburgh Fringe, it's the only yeah. time I'm involved in the sort of booking and venue running side of things. Um, look, uh, music, stand-up uh, as an independent is an unstable lifestyle. Uh, so is any form of being self-employed. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't have that next job coming through, then you aren't paying the rent. Um, uh, is it more unstable for performers, regardless of the genre? Yeah, probably. Um, but uh, that is something that uh, I, I don't think can be avoided. You've got to accept that and yeah. make it work for you. Or, like you say, um, maybe change career? Yeah. I, I just quickly want to touch on... Um Red, your alter ego. Oh, right, um, yeah. So put it in a punk perspective, like your Bronx. Scarlett Johansson is your mariachi or Bronx. Oh, cool, yeah. how, how is that like going from a, uh, a traditional comedy scene to all of a sudden become this alter ego and becoming your drag act? Because from what I know from drag acts, it's a lot more sharp tongue. It's a lot more on the cuff. You have to be reactive to what's going on in the room. Uh, to be honest, I think I timed it wrong, like, starting doing drag, because I feel like when I started doing drag was around the time people were like, I think we've had enough of edgy comedy, <laughs> and here I am in a full dress going like, oh, do you want to hear some jokes about fisting? And uh, <laughs> largely, they don't. Um, so, you know, it's it, interesting. Good use of the word largely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's an it, interesting time to be doing that, but, you know, it's... Um, I perform my, my, performing as myself and performing as Scarlett are two very different acts. Myself is very, it's like an anxiety driven, uh, taken too many drugs sort of character. And then Scarlett is a much more together, bitchy, uh, in control and domineering character. And then, I, like m- me off stage here right now, I'm kind of in the middle. Um, so, you know, it depends what room you're playing. Like, a lot of the times. If I talk to a promoter, there'll be rooms where Scarlet will work, there'll be rooms where Red will work, there'll be rooms where both will work and we'll have to work out uh, what works best. Uh, and then obviously there's a difference between if I'm doing a set or if I'm emceeing. Those are very different types of performances as well. So I've got a lot of range, <laughs> but I don't know what the fuck to do with it. <laughs> So the audio of this, as long as it's decent, will go out around August time. So like Edinburgh-wise, where are you going to be, Sully? Uh, I'm involved in two shows at the Beehive Inn. Uh, one is called uh, Freestyle Comedy. Uh, it's on at four o'clock, and that is our unscripted stand-up show. Uh, so literally every show is different from the next. Uh, and then we're also in the Beehive Inn uh, in the attic at 5.45, and that is called the Great British Cake Affair. Uh, uh, normally we come with a political show this year we'll be trying to make the most offensive cakes we can possibly make uh, yeah, there is a, there is a, there, yeah, yeah, there's a reason the show came about there's a reason the show came about um, it, it actually came about to do with um, the, uh, the gay cake uh, incident in Belfast oh, yeah, yeah. and of course there's a similar one in the States and about whether uh, refusing to break a, a baker gay cake is a case of discrimination <laughs> or a baker's right and so we're set about to try to order the most offensive cakes we possibly can <laughs> and uh, during August you're going to see the results <laughs> you have to see <laughs> well thank you for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the festival and yeah thank you cheers no, thank you thank you
Thank you to Red and Sully for giving up their time to come and chat and talk to me. Uh, and also thank you to the good people who found us and stuck with us downstairs in the font basement. If you are going to Manchester, go check out one of Red's comedy nights at the Dead Cat. A link to that website is on in the episode bio of if you're using your phone to listen to this or go on the uh, social media page punks in pub social media page there'll be a link there and if you are going to edinburgh this august make sure you go and say hi to sully at one of his two shows again a link in the bio or on the punks in pub social media pages at punks in pubs Uh, As promised, playing out this bonus episode is a band hailing from Austin, Texas. They are called Hans Gruber and the Diehards. So if you live in the area, and make sure you go and watch them live and let them know that Liam says hi. This track is called We're All Going to Die. That's it for this special bonus content. Uh, We'll be back uh, next Sunday for episode 37 with the Newtown Kings as my guest. If you are going to a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. Until next time, bye bye. What's your life worth? It's all kind of meaning. If you're walking back, the flesh is in your drop at any minute. Smile as if it's in your bank, your heart stops. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're all gonna die. But I'm not saying it's a bad thing. We're all kind of terrible. I just wanted you to know that we're all gonna Yeah, yeah, we're all gonna die. Don't you know, don't you know?